Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Uh, welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. Hi, I'm Bill, and each week on the Living Free Show, we showcase one of the 12-step programs that assists recovery from drugs, alcohol, gambling and food addictions. Our guests share their recovery story and highlight that shared experience saves lives. Uh, I'd like to welcome Danny to the show today. Hi, Danny. Hi, Bill. Danny's an alcoholic and he's recovering with the help of Alcoholics Anonymous. And we're going to discuss how Alcoholics Anonymous helps alcoholics and problem drinkers. Danny, we usually start talking about early life and growing up and you as a kid and, you know, school and family. So what was life like for you, you know, as a young boy? Yeah, sure. Um, So, Bill, I was born in the UK. I didn't come to Australia or emigrate to Australia till the year 2000. So I've been here about 20 years. But Born and brought up in the UK, I was born into a, a very strongly religious family. Just to give you an idea as to how powerful that sort of Christian theme ran in my family, my, my dad's parents were missionaries in China. You know, they, they, they went through some really interesting years back in the 20s with an English school and yeah, it's like a Christian mission operation in China. So um, it was a theme that my dad never managed to shed this powerful, powerful, what I guess what he saw as a command to make disciples of men, you know? And this theme was ever present in my family of origin. And, and as a young kid, I was I was brought up in a, with lots of rules, lots of sort of heavy kind of shame-based, you know, patriarchal ideology and, and, and things around, Christian life and it was it was tough I mean we even went through a period when I was a kid between the ages of about eight to maybe 13 maybe three or four years of we had like a commune experiment going on in the house and there were different people living in the house people that my older brother and others had sort of got in touch with these were like the these were the 70s you know dropping out was the thing you did there was nothing my dad loved better than setting up this sort of christian commune experiment in our own family home it was an opportunity to make disciples of men and during that whole sort of process you know i as the youngest of four almost disappeared off the radar a bit in terms of how was i going at school what was my academia looking like you know was i understanding and partaking in this kind of strange, crazy Christian experiment that was going on in my home. I wasn't really. I found that I was left with all the guilt, shame, the awkwardness of making friends and, and having a secure peer group because I felt so different, you know. I mean, there was even a period during that upbringing where a vote was taken in the house to get rid of the TV, you know, and I was like sort of eight, nine, ten, or whatever it was, no, probably 10, 11, you know, that most formulative period where, you know, if you can't go into school in the morning and talk about what you watched on telly last night, whether it was $6 million man or Superman or whatever it was you were watching, then, you know, who the hell are you? And I had to face that awkwardness at school. Like, you know, I, I almost became known as the, the, the dude without the telly, you know, and it was freaking embarrassing and difficult. And because of my upbringing, because it was so different in so many ways, it made it a big struggle for me to, I had to work doubly hard to stay in a friendship group and in a circle that I felt accepted by. And and, it, and I never really sort of felt accepted. I always felt different at my core. Not to mention as I, as I got into my sort of 12 and early teens, you know, forming relationships, balance chilled relationships with girls it was just not on the agenda there was so much shame and guilt associated with the whole notion of of sex or relationships with the opposite sex and so I felt so different as a result of my upbringing 
not all of it bad. I want to I want to say not all of it bad, but there were some definite themes there that that interfered significantly with my healthy teen development that gave me a platform for going forward in life in some sort of healthy balanced way so was there any alcohol drugs or gambling or anything in your family no it's not a theme i mean both my parents were pretty much teetotal i mean dad would occasionally drink a few too many sherry's at christmas time but that was because he was enjoying carol singing so much but there, there were no drugs. I mean, my brother, sadly, my older brother, who's 10 years older than me, is not with us anymore. He developed a problem with drinking from an early age. I, I had two sisters as well, um, one five years older, one seven years older than me, who each had difficult periods with um, anorexia and bulimia. So all four of the kids in this family were affected in different ways by some of the themes I've just talked about. And, and my brother died a couple of years ago. Uh, no more than that, three three years ago, as a result of just years and years of alcohol abuse. And I had to watch him deteriorate bodily and pass away as his organs basically gave up through, through the use of alcohol. So whilst there was no drugs or alcohol being used in my parents' side, there were themes going on there that were, it feels to me, just as powerful as substance abuse or, or, or addiction can be in some people's families. Yeah. So what about in your grandparents? Was there anything a generation back or not? Yeah, look, I don't really know enough about that. I haven't researched that enough. And, you know, things were so hush-hush. And when I was growing up, the only side of my dad's family or my mum's family that we had much to do with were those that sort of towed the party line, that, that were kind of ex deemed acceptable sort of nice Christian people. It was, uh, you know... Uh, there were people in my dad's family that, that rebelled and rejected the whole sort of missionary Christian zeal thing. But in my grandparents, I'm, I, I don't know the answer to that, Bill. Uh, it's possible. I'm not aware of that link. So what about your mother? You talked a lot about your dad. What was your relationship like with your mum? Well, I had a good relationship with mum. I mean, mum was mum. Was mum but both my parents came from a sort of pretty strict Christian almost brethren-style church in London, uh, where a woman's duty was to sit there quietly with a hat on on a Sunday morning and, um, you know, get on with household chores and duties. There were these leanings, these themes going on, and I know that my dad wasn't entirely comfortable with it, but it was like that was kind of the age as well. And so I grew up in this sort of fairly sort of patriarchal system where, you know, it was it was the, the dad's role to get out there and earn the, the family living and make that sacrifice and it was the mum's role to make house and home and be there for kids and so on and so forth and I mean she did a great job at that I mean I have beautiful fond memories of mum and you know just the warmth of her being there all the time the household cooking and doing stuff but and she was on board in most respects but there was a side to her that was seething inside there was a side to her that was carrying a lot of resentment about the way she felt pressured by all these patriarchal themes. And, and that sort of came out of her sometimes in the way that she encouraged naughtiness in the boys. Like my older brother and me, mum used to almost encourage us to be uh, rebellious and a bit naughty. And it was like her resentment coming out in some pretty spurious and screwy ways. And so, yeah, she was at home most of the time. Uh, but she was doing, you know, a very tough, big, big role. She was a lovely lady, but um, she had, you know, limited understanding, I think, of of what was going on with people, some of the people that were living in the house, because of all these waifs and strays that came to live with us, lots of them were users, you know, they all were using different drugs and so on, and neither of my parents really had much of a clue around that or what, what, that, what was going on there. Uh, there was a level of naivety around their approach to these things that was extraordinary you know when I look back I mean I was growing up with people who were dropping tabs and LSD all the time people that were drinking people that were just generally spaced out in life you know it was an interesting upbringing combining that with some of the Christian stuff I've already mentioned so yeah it left me feeling quite confused quite ill at ease quite a lot of issues with acceptance in my peer group 
and um, yeah, that sort of went into my into my teens as I as I, you know, and, and it affected my academic record. I mean, I didn't I didn't really do very well at school, despite the fact my dad was an Oxford graduate. You know, I didn't really do well at school because I wasn't ready. I couldn't I couldn't focus to learn academically. I was so uncomfortable within myself. There was this deep sort of discomfiture with who I was. I didn't know who I was. There were so many questions. There was a lot of pain and just turmoil there from not feeling enough acceptance and not feeling enough safety and balance in my life. And so, you know, you can imagine that, you know, in, in my teens, relatively early teens, running around with mates and dudes I was really wanting to be friendly with, the, the moment we managed to get into some of the pubs and, and get some beer in us, for me in particular, it reached parts that, it, you know, it satisfied a need, a deep, deep need. That feeling of alcohol slipping down inside satisfied a deep, deep need in me that others didn't, it wasn't the same for them. Obviously, you're underage going into pubs. So how early were you doing that? Uh, look, probably from about the age of 15, 15, 16. So, you know, we used to we used to make a, a sport or a hobby out of finding the, the local country pubs with a barman that was uh, more interested in selling a pint of beer than, than worrying about the age of the clientele. But the, the same thing was going on back in those days as goes on today. You know, kids get hold of grog and find ways of getting hold of it, taking it to parties and do's. And, you know, looking back now, it's pretty clear to me that, that alcohol was, was doing a job for me that was deeper and more powerful than, you know, what I'd call a normal drinker. A lot of alcoholics, I should say, say that their first drink sort of made them feel complete and lowered their anxiety and made them feel like they fitted in. So what was the experience for you? Yeah, look, I mean, exactly those things. You know, I, I found the numbing effect of alcohol, you know, it definitely reduced anxiety, social anxiety. It definitely made me feel more part of a group um, and, and that, that was the job it was doing for me. So that's what I'm trying to say. When I'm saying that the alcohol reached parts of me at a deep level, that's, that's exactly what it was. It was an anesthetizing, oiling tool that allowed me to function and feel some sense of normality without you know, these ever-present feelings of, of, of shame or anxiety or guilt around talking to girls or all of these things. And, you know, in my, in my late teens, that just progressed. I began drinking with my brother, who by that stage was probably, you know, many years ahead of me in terms of alcohol use as a tool. So, yeah, we, he only made things worse because <laughs> I began to sort of try and keep up with him. And, um, you know, a lot of our socializing was done around pubs and parties and, you know, alcohol was just ever-present. Well, what did your parents think about your brother and you drinking? They were fairly hopeless. <laughs> I mean, they didn't, they didn't really know enough about... They really were naive and they would stick their hand, head in the sand a lot. I mean, particularly my dad. I mean, rather than acknowledge there's an issue around a particular substance abuse or there's something going on that isn't right, he would, you know, just over, over uh, spiritualize things and, you know try and see things in context of his Christian understanding and sometimes it was left to my mum to actually have a hard word with me or to to advise me against some particular girlfriend or some particular thing you know and dad was just um he seemed so preoccupied with his his day-to-day -day job working in the city and so preoccupied with his church organizations and functions that it just didn't. It didn't factor in. There was a, a almost like a felt to me like a denigration of responsibility. It's like he was up there in the clouds with his religious ideas, and you know, really didn't concern himself enough with where I was at in my head, where I was academically, what was going on for me psychologically, spiritually, how it was with my friends. You know, there was just there were there were more important things for him than leading and being a good example to his own kids, which is pretty sad. It's a pretty sad thing to say. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Well, listen, we might take a short break there.
I'm so tired of hiding that I'm dying inside I'm steady holding back tears in a country that's blind In a country that's black, but we don't talk about that I nearly took my own life and turned it into a stat But you don't wanna talk about my trauma Talk about my dad being flora and fauna Talk about the fact you benefit from my suffering Talk about the fact I never lived on my country I'm disconnected, but you ain't affected On the day to day, so you ain't never learned the message Well, this shit is desperate I had a family who loved me with a clean bill of health 20 years down under, I wanted to kill myself And I still do, from time to time it brings me comfort, it calms my mind When I was young I didn't realize I had a disease I figured it was normal to wanna be at peace And I found it When I crossed the street I closed my eyes, crossed my fingers Hope a truck killed me Hope that I could be free From all of this hurt You only stand with me on top of six feet of dirt I want what you want, I swear we all the same I don't wanna live my life digging my own grave I don't wanna explain why the shit ain't okay I don't wanna see the same cycle happen again I don't wanna hold my children while they shaking in pain Bring them into the world and tell them that it's okay Do I lie to they face? What the fuck do I say? When the same very pain made me wanna blow my brain Same pain made my dad an alcoholic His dad had the same fate, this shit is hard to stomach But you watch it, as long as you profit, you forgotten We the skeletons that you hanging from your closet For the moments when I'm not there Know that you were here Always with me For those hopeful chains on your feet Believe them to be Slave to nobody At each crossroad to find yourself Or somebody else Will take the lead And know that love cannot begin If your heart is built by what you give Not receive my dad called and he gave me some wisdom He said, son, I can see you dealing with symptoms I see your pain, I felt the same If you want real change, you gotta play the long game There's no easy fix, this shit is all consuming I know you're overwhelmed, I know this shit's confusing I know you're troubled and don't know what to do with it The simple answer is, we're all human So understand why you want this change If you don't ask why, you might be here today but your motivation fades if you ain't got no stake in seeing this through Cause this is gonna take much longer than a second Longer than a minute We might only lay the groundwork Our children finish You won't fix what you don't understand Man created this problem The solution's in your hand Ah, and that song was Chichi by Ziggy Rama From the album Deadly Hearts Walking Together Courtesy of Australian Music Radio Airplay Project Hi, Man's here from the Japarong Embassy. On October the 26th, after two and a half years of defending sacred women's country, the embassy, family, friends and supporters were forcibly removed from country by Victoria Police. The Andrews State Government, alongside Major Roads Projects Victoria, have begun their violent attack to desecrate the sovereign lands of the Japarong to make way for the duplication of the Western Highway between Buangal and Ararat. There are many old growth trees, one significant tree in particular, a 350-year-old yellow box gum, the Directions tree. She's a placenta tree who holds the DNA of the Japarong ancestors. She was felled by a chainsaw at the hands of a government that is asking for a treaty with its first peoples. The embassy and its frontline protectors are calling out for your help. To find out more, including how to get to the embassy to help defend on the ground, visit the Japarong Heritage Protection Embassy's Facebook page. Educate yourself, donate to their Chuff campaign, and spread the word. 3CR supports the Japarong Heritage Protection Embassy. No trees, no treaty. Accent women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a, in a completely violent um, cultural milieu that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accent women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the How the can country. people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are, two, where there are armies there and terrorists there and such conflict every single day of their lives? Accent women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. Every Monday from 11am on Community Radio 3CR.
this is the Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you're interested in listening to one of our many podcasts, then either head to your preferred podcast platform, iTunes, Spotify, or just Google 3CR Living Free. On our show's webpage, you'll also find details about the Living Free Show and how to contact us. Uh, today I'm talking with Danny, and we're talking about recovery from alcoholism with the help of Alcoholics Anonymous. So, Danny, we sort of got to the point where you've been drinking underage for a little while. So did things change once you started work or turned 18? Not really. I'd say, if anything, my drinking just got more ingrained. My use of alcohol just became heavier as I got older. As I, once I was 18, I was able to go out to pubs, be out later, be my own a law unto myself. And in fact, some of, probably some of my heaviest drinking was done in my sort of 18, 19, 20, those kind of years, where, you know, we, we, everybody was out to prove themselves and, you know, sink as many pints as possible. And it was just male bravado plus plus and partying and, you know, alcohol use was ever present. In fact, you know, I can remember my first ever blackout, significant blackout, probably was when I was about 18 or 19, when I had way, way too much to drink one night into the early hours of the morning. And, you know, I remember leaving a party and just blacking out. And the next thing I knew, I was laying outside the front gate of my house on a freezing cold, frosty morning in a pool of vomit, just wondering what the hell I was doing, where I, how I'd got there and how I could get in the house. And I eventually was let in the house and sat in front of a bar fire to defrost. Otherwise, I, I'm kind of miraculous. I've got my fingers and toes. But, um, you know, I came round too and I'd lost everything the next morning. My wallet, keys, car, everything had gone and I had to kind of retrace all my steps and, and figure out what on earth had happened. And, um, you know, that that was just crazy, crazy, reckless drinking. It was born out of out of some of the stuff I've, I've already talked about. I mean, my, my, my social life revolved around the pub and around my brother and some of his friends, and that's how I eventually met my first wife because, um, you know, she was an Australian lady, a nurse that came to the UK, and I met her when I was still 19. We eventually fell for each other. We met in a pub setting. It was always around beer and alcohol and partying. She wasn't threatening to me because she rode a motorbike. She didn't really dress like a, a woman in touch with her femininity. So she was less threatening to me. And, you know, one thing led to another. And before I knew what was happening in my sort of naive, inebriated state, we end up getting together. We're, we're pregnant. We have a wedding and look, lots of, lots of partying and, and good crazy times were had. But it was quite clear to me that she was unwell. You know, part of, part of the, the dysfunction of that relationship was that I came into it not knowing who I was, what I wanted. I had no clarity. And all I knew was that this was a female figure that I, I, I felt I could be with and she was really quite sick, quite a sick person with because of her own family trauma, her own family um, problems. And, you know, it was almost as if it was, a, it was a coupling kind of born out of dysfunction. I mean, it wasn't all bad. It wasn't all bad as, as nothing ever is. You know, I mean, I've got three beautiful older kids who are all here in Melbourne as a result of that marriage. And I wouldn't have it any other way. I love them very, very much. But, you know, that first wife of mine is dead now. She, she died of, of alcoholic poisoning along with antipsychotics and psychiatric medication in the Austin just two, two years ago. You know, she had a, had a very, very tough life where, you know, there were lots of good times, but the trips to casualty, the overdoses, the problems, somewhat fueled by my own inability to drink, my own inability to see what was going on, you know, because I was using alcohol daily pretty much as a, as a crutch and to, to keep my eyes shut and to keep myself in denial about how screwed and dysfunctional this relationship was. And I was also wanting to be there for the kids. That marriage was just traumatic, 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 plus, plus. And it went on for nearly 19 years. 
and until I, I had to walk away. I had to walk away from that marriage because I, after some help with that from Al-Anon, I was in Al-Anon for years trying to work out what the hell was going on with my life and how I could manage or deal with this person in my life that was so clearly unwell. But, and, and in a way, that work I did in Al-Anon, it, I mean, it did help me in some respects. It gave me some tools. It gave me some... But it got nowhere to me addressing my own core problems, my own core issues. So what sort of things did Al-Anon help you understand with your wife's drinking? Yeah, so Al-Anon at least helped me understand that, that there, was a, there was a deep sort of disease concept thing running here. And it helped me around detachment, like starting to understand the boundaries of, around where the things I could control. And it started to help me to detach from her in a way, because that, that marriage, that relationship was just so, so enmeshed and dysfunctional. It was as if neither of us really knew where the other one started or ended. I think that's a normal alcoholic relationship. <laughs> yeah. So Al-Anon helped me significantly in least understanding how to sort of sever some of those ties and, and focus on my own crap. And as I, as I started to do that, I mean, it was Al-Anon that really got me to the point of realizing that, that I was in serious danger. Because in the, in the last few years of that relationship, I mean, dangerous things were happening. You know, cars were getting smashed. A lot of drunk driving was being done. You know, my life was in danger. Glasses were getting smashed, knives were getting rattled at, late at night, overdoses were happening, and it was really, it was dysfunctional, and, and it was leaving me quite traumatized, and I realized I had to do something about that, I had to get away. The kids were old enough to, at least, to deal with that, so I got out, I got out of that relationship, and ended up living with my daughter, who wanted to come and live with me, and that was in 2006. So I escaped with my life intact, but I was traumatized. I hadn't begun the work I needed to do to sort out my own dis-ease. So what about your kids, though? Living with two alcoholics must have been pretty difficult for them. Oh, hugely. Yeah, hugely. I mean, you know, each one of those kids has had their own level of issues they've had to deal with um, over time. I mean, I, I think it's testament to the fact that both myself and their mum were able to be healthy and loving towards them for large periods of time, that they're, that they're by and large okay. But they definitely got their testing periods. They've definitely had their testing periods. And, um, yeah, look, they've had their share of therapy and counselling and done their share of work that they've needed to do with themselves to sort out stuff from their, their childhood experience and some of the traumatic times they, they went through. So what brought you to the point where you thought you needed to go to AA then? What was it? Well, I'm smiling, but I mean, um, after that tragic story, one may be wonder how anyone could smile. But you know what? It was really, I remember walking out of an Al-Anon meeting here, here in Australia, just maybe whatever it was, I don't know, back in 2005, 2006. Um, and somehow it got clear to me that I, I remember looking up, there was an AA meeting and people had just spilled out of the AA rooms and there were people laughing and smoking. And I looked up from, from where I'd just come out of the Alnon meeting and I said to myself, I probably should be up there, you know, because I was aware of my drinking, you know, and I, I said to myself, I, I should probably be up there. I don't know what I'm doing here now in Alnon. I pushed that feeling or that thought under the carpet quickly because it had been quite a good meeting that day. And, you know, I thought, well, okay, what, am, what shall I do now? And on my, on my way home, I bought a couple of bottles of red, you know, which was my habit because it had been a good meeting. I wanted to go and sit and have a drink and have a think about this. And um, it was just shocking, you know, that, that I was constantly pushing my own issue under the table like that. That's very common, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I guess what happened for me is I ultimately ended up getting married again a couple of years later in 2009. You know, I tried hard in that marriage and that relationship to to be the best person I could in the world. And I was I was lucky. I married a really gorgeous woman who 
took me on and we had some really, really great times together. That marriage lasted for about 10, 11 years. We had a child from that marriage, but I consistently used alcohol throughout that marriage to deal with life stresses and strains. You know, there were job insecurities. And looking back now, I can see just how crazy I was through that marriage, you know, in terms of not knowing how to stay in my own space and mind my own business. And really what happened in that marriage is that because of a lot of, I mean, it always takes two to tango, I know this, but in large part due to my dysfunction and my dis-ease that I always had, that marriage came under real strain. And there was a period where there was a four or five year period that began in 2014 where I had to deal with a lot of grief. I lost my dad and then a couple of years later, my mum passed away. Just from old age, they'd had a good innings and things were good. But um, a few weeks after my mum passed away, my brother died, which I'd already spoken about earlier from, from alcohol abuse. And then um, a year later, my first wife dies in the Austin, and that brought back a, a, an awful lot of stuff. I didn't deal well with that grief. I didn't know how to. I was, I was abusing alcohol regularly, you know. And really, I put that poor last wife of mine through the mill because of my alcoholic behavior and my alcoholic existence. So that marriage broke down. A, an amazing woman walked away, leaving me in a, in a cold house with a black cat on my lap and uh, a large goon sack of red wine, you know? And I was sitting there one night drinking that, that red wine and thinking, this is not good. This, something's very, very bloody wrong here now because everything had gone, anything I wanted to blame, all my scapegoats had gone, I was left there on my own. And I had a blinding moment of clarity. I had a blinding moment of clarity. Don't know how it happened, don't know where it came from, but somehow something happened and, and, and my brother, my dead brother's face appeared to me. And I could see his face just as I could back in the UK all those years ago with you know, he started to have blotches and marks develop on his face as a result of his organs gradually packing in and giving up because of alcohol. His face appeared to me and he was like smiling at me. And he pointed at me and he said, I didn't make it, but you still have time. And it was just the most profoundly powerful experience I've ever had. It was just, it rocked me back in my seat. And even though I'd had you know, quite a lot to drink. I just sat back and I thought, where did that come from? And it changed something in me. Something shifted, you know. And I went to bed that night just feeling different. And I woke up in the morning just feeling different. I realized that somehow all of my job insecurities, all of the banging and crashing and the problems and the dysfunction, it all came to me like, I could see that there was this common denominator, that throughout it all, alcohol was this common denominator and the way I was using alcohol. And I just thought that if I had any chance, any chance of sorting out my life and sorting out my dysfunction and my disease, you know, why I was unhappy with myself, why I wasn't able to, to run my life in a way that resulted in some peace, some, some peace and stability, the one thing I had to do is I had to stop drinking. That's all I knew. I had to stop drinking because I couldn't do the work, sort, start to sort stuff out and find recovery if I was drinking. So I sat there in bed in the morning and realized that I had to get myself to AA. And that night I went to my first AA meeting. We might take a short break there. at the bar she don't talk to anyone ain't leaving soon far afar where she don't know It's gonna be forever 
Forever Now, uh, again courtesy of Australian Music Radio Airplay Project. Music has been at the heart of the city of Darabin's rich cultural history. Beats, Ballads and Ballrooms is an audio tour that covers the history of country, rock, punk, cabaret, rebetica, folk and traditional music styles in the Darabin area. Experienced as a walking tour via the Echoes app, or listen to at home via the web. The tour brings listeners to 15 locations to reveal the songs and stories behind the city's venues, past and present. Visit BeatsBalladsAndBallrooms.com for more information. Beats, Ballads and Ballrooms was commissioned and funded by Darabin Arts, a hyperlocal. A 3CR supporter. So, here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong and how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Jan. This is the Living Free Show on 3CR on digital radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. And I'm talking with Danny about recovery from alcoholism with the help of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, so, Danny, we left you 
realizing you'd, you'd have to make a major change in your life and stop drinking alcohol. So, you know, you, you'd been in Al-Anon, so you were familiar with 12-step programs. So what's it like changing from one fellowship to another? Well, for me, in my condition, it was huge because I'd been attending Al-Anon for years, both in the UK and in Australia, under the guise of, you know, it being someone else's problem, not me. <laughs> and I don't think I'd begun to get to grips with the extent of my own disease, my own problems. And, and my experience of Al-Anon was that typically you're not challenged as much as you are in AA. You can't get away with it in AA because there are that many like-minded people around you that, you know, are prodding you and sort of challenging you that, you know, wanting to hear your real truth. And <laughs> there's a great saying in AA, you can't bullshit an alcoholic. And I think that's exactly the way it was. So, you know, for me, the moment I, I stepped into AA, I, there was this recognition and acceptance. I'd, I'd surrendered. I'd had enough, you know. I was beaten down to the point where I realized that my will, my way of trying to manage life was just bringing, bringing pain and failure to me. So when I stared at those 12 steps on the wall, they had some real resonance with me because I knew that they were, gonna, they were about me, not anybody else, about me. And it was really clear to me that I'd stepped into the AA rooms for me because because I had experienced that much pain that um, I needed to start this process of of not only working out who I was and what I wanted, but also to build into my life some sort of real spirituality, something that was meaningful, that was greater than me, that was bigger than me, because my will wasn't working. You know, my attempts to stop drinking, my attempts to figure out my life and, and, and get it on the on the straight and narrow just were not working. So yeah, there was a big change that was required and I couldn't do that drinking. I couldn't do that drinking. So, you know, I needed to hear those messages from the old timers in the AA rooms that, you know, you just stop drinking, put down, don't take the first drink. If you don't take the first drink, you can't get drunk, you know? And I needed to hear that repetitiously because I knew that my, my holy grail, if you like, was greater understanding of what it meant to have a higher power in my life. I needed, I needed this God concept, you know. That was, that was the thing that was going to keep me sober. Somewhere in the back of my head, probably because of my upbringing, I knew that this was what would keep me sober. And, and all the way up until then, I'd never really had a God or a higher power in my life. I was that. I was the high power. I engineered resolutions. I got well-paid jobs and managed families and managed people and lived through people. And my will was what ran the show. But this moment of surrender that came to me in AA meant that I needed to listen. Probably for the first time in my life, I needed to shut up and listen. Because around me, I started to see miracles. I started to see people that had been through every bit as much pain and crap as I had in life who had started to get their life sorted out because they weren't using alcohol or another substance to, as a crutch. And I wanted that. I wanted that. And I, I, you know, I started to see that this 12-step program, if I, if I took it into my life and I took it seriously, you know, was something that would give me a frame of reference. It would give me something to live by. You know, I, I wasn't looking for a quick fix. I got at some very deep level that I needed to appropriate this program into my life, you know, to find out who I was and how I needed to live now. And that was what I decided to try and do. And, you know, I was told by older sober members, you know, get off your high horse and go and do 90 meetings in 90 days. You know, go and listen. And that's what I did. And I, I, at the time, I was in, in a pretty responsible, well-paid job. And I thought, how the hell am I going to work for this big corporate organization and keep my city job down and, and, and go and hang out with all these AAs and do 90 meetings in 90 days? I, I didn't know the answer. But what I did know was that if I didn't go and do those 90, meetings, 90 days, and if I didn't go and immerse myself in AA, I was, I was destined for more pain. And I didn't want that. I didn't want to go back there. So um, 
I did something pretty radical, and I just resigned. <laughs> just resi- I just resigned from a really well-paid job and responsible job without knowing what I was doing, um, except that I needed to free up time to get into this program and to to attend meetings because it felt it really felt like a matter of life and death for me. It felt so powerful, um, like a matter of life and death. I had to go and do this. And so I resigned my, my role, much to the amazement of the managing director who said, what, what the hell is going on with you? And I had to explain at length um, without giving too much away that it was for personal reasons. I needed to, <laughs> I needed to leave. And I did exactly that. I went and did my 19, I probably did 100 meetings in 90 days. I don't know because I just got so into doing meetings and I traveled around the area. I went to different meetings. I went to ID meetings. I went to discussion group meetings. I went to big book meetings. I went to spiritual concept meetings. And it was the best thing I ever have done in my life because it really turned things around for me. And I started to see the power of this program at work in people's lives. I started to realize that this is something that had to be taken seriously. And more than that, more than that, the compulsion to drink or use alcohol left me. And that was just, that was an, ast- an astounding miracle, you know? We're talking about a, a guy who, you know, <laughs> I drank for 35 years. I used alcohol big time to try and manage my life and my anxieties and my tension. And from the day I stepped into the rooms of AA, my compulsion to use alcohol left me. And I haven't had a drink since. And, you know, that 90 minutes in 90 days was just crucial, crucial to my recovery journey. I could see that despite the imperfections in AA and the imperfections in people in recovery, I could see that there was there was gold here. You know, there was something really powerful and special. And, you know, today I just see that every time I attend a meeting and I listen to people and I listen to the miracles that happen in people's lives when they get honest. You get honest and you get in this program, recovery will follow. It's like one plus one equals two. It will happen. There's this beautiful section in the big book called The Promises. And I always love when we read it in the big book meetings because these promises if people follow and appropriate this program as I have in my life these promises start to come true it's really provided me with a, a forum to, to, to start to unpickle my life and understand with a sense of honesty where I've come from what I've been through why it was the way it was but you know what all of the psychology I've had all of the counseling all of the therapy Yes, it's helped to some degree, but it hasn't brought about that spiritual transition, that powerful change inside of me. None of it has, like AA has, because AA has given me that conscious contact with something greater than myself. It's a simple God. It's definitely not a Christian God. It's definitely not a shaming God. It's definitely not a, a white-bearded dude up there in the sky that pulls levers according to how hard I pray. You know, it's a very different sort of high power I have in my life today. But it's something I feel close to. And it's something I feel I have conscious contact with through people in the meetings, the energy in the AA meetings, being out in nature, breathing, being honest, sharing my my feelings, allowing myself to feel vulnerable sometimes when it's safe to do so. And these things have have really allowed me to stay sober. And it's a day-at-a-time thing. So I, I, I see AA as being, well, the AA program as being part of my life for the rest of my life because I'm a person who needs that structure, who needs that conscious contact with God, who needs that program. So I, I come back to the 12 steps. Although I've done the 12 steps in inverted commas with my sponsor, and it was fantastic to go through that process, I see myself as a person that needs to continually come back to those steps as I go forward in life, because that's the only way I can keep a real handle on staying sober and being being somebody who I who, who has some balance in life and has something to give others. What aspect of the twelve steps resonated with you and was important in your life? Really, for me, the most most impactful was was steps two and three. You know, coming coming to accept and understand a higher power in my life. That was the most impactful because. To me, 
I couldn't really get into step four. I mean, step four is daunting enough. I mean, we've got to dish up all of the crap and all of our resentments and all of the problems we've had through life. And we've got to start that process of looking at that. And I, I couldn't look at that. I couldn't even face that, honestly, until I felt some understanding and awareness and an acceptance of a power greater than myself, of some some higher power in my life. So for me, steps two and three were absolutely pivotal as part of that program. Step one was just about surrender. It was the point of surrender for me. There wasn't much hope in step one for me. It was just about capitulation. It was me just getting on my knees and saying, I have really, I really want to badly swear, but I know I'm on radio, but I really give up. I really give up. And then it was about finding this conscious contact because without it, I couldn't, I could not be where I am today. And it's allowed me to understand a core part of the program. And that is giving away, giving of myself, you know, the, the work I'm now doing is 180 degrees out of phase with the work I, I used to do in the corporate world. You know, it's about people. It's about giving of myself and trying to work with others to help them lift their well-being. And, you know, that a blessing. I think it feels like a blessing in my life. I have that right now. So what about your relationships now? Well, look, I mean, I've decided to be, I've been single and on my own for the last two and a half years. You know, I haven't, I've resisted going into another relationship because I felt completely, I've just felt the need to work on my own stuff and to get into this program and to find a sense of, a sense of peace and serenity. That has been core for me because when I look back now, the ease with which I could have just, you know, gone into another relationship and repeated the same old patterns was just extreme extreme and you know today I now I now feel a much greater sense of who I am what I want and and although funnily enough in the last year or so I've met quite a few potential partners or potential people I could have a relationship with I've actually found I've, I've shunned it or I've rejected people with this amazing crazy discernment because because you know I, I at the forefront of my mind are the qualities and the beauties I'm looking for in people who I can be close to or want to be close to. And so I'm, yeah, I'm still on my own and um, maybe that will change tomorrow or the next day or the next month. Who knows? I don't know. But um, one thing I do know for sure is that I feel in a whole better space around a relationship than I, than I've ever done. So what about your relationship with your kids? Yeah, my relationship with my kids is good. I mean, they've they've had some interesting reactions to my personality change and things that have happened to me whilst I've been in AA. And it's not all been plain sailing, you know, because of the honesty with which I've had to review my past and the amends I've had to make through my step four process. That's been challenging for my kids at times. But I'm very fortunate to say that my relationship with them runs deep. And my, my daughter and my oldest son, um, things are good with. And, you know, my middle son, there's there's work to be done there in terms of amends that I need to make with him and repair that needs to be made. But, you know, I, I, I just feel a sense of optimism around it because they're three wonderful individuals. And, you know, I'm determined to be honest and be loving and do the right thing by them because... My God, I owe them, each of those three living amends. And, you know, grandchildren are popping up now. And, and, and that's a beautiful thing in my life. So, you know, I'm determined to, to make the best living amends I can. That sounds good. So you said you changed your focus in work. So what sort of things are you doing now that, than you did before? Yeah, well, I think before, you know, working in the corporate world, I was just sort of following a, an age-old, sort of almost patriarchal family theme like a you know my nose down bum up I just went and earned the money to pay a big home loan and to support a family and it's what I always did from the age of 21 and I was just sacrificing my own happiness for meeting this this theme that was playing out in me you know and you know in my last marriage I remember there were times when my my what my then wife would say to me you know you could do this you could do that we could ease some of these things up you know but I couldn't see it. I mean, I was just so deeply in denial. I, 
I was and, and fear. I was too deeply in denial and fear to make any of those changes. So I was grinding away, you know, doing this provide, provide, provide bit and, and drinking with my anxiety and drinking with success and drinking with failure. And it was just an impossible situation. And, you know, I, I, I took some time out. As I said, I resigned so I could go and bathe myself in AA, you know, um, which is what I did. And I gave myself time to, to think about what next. And something quite miraculous happened. A friend of mine came around and his wife has MS and he works in disability sector. And, you know, he found this job on his phone as we were talking, you know, over a cup of coffee. He, what about this job? And it was a job working in the mental disability sector as a, as a, as a support worker or as, and, and, and I, I just said, well, no, it's not, you know, it's not on my radar. I don't do that. I mean, I run projects. I, I do big business deals. But after we talked a while and, and I thought about the AA program and, and how it's working in my life, I said, give me, give me that phone again. Let me have a look at that job ad. So I reread the ad and it suddenly dawned on me, you know, that this, this, I could do this. I could work with this. And not only that, I've had firsthand experience of working with or of living with somebody that was really quite unstable and unwell mentally. And, and so I decided to make this change. And long story short, I, I, I got the job. And, you know, I now work in that sector, working with other people who have some really quite extreme needs. I've, I've found that I've got that ability to come alongside them and, and have some empathy and just help them with everyday tasks, you know. I'm not their specialist practitioner, but I'm their aide, their social support, their their friend who's there for them, you know? And, and I feel like it's, I'm, I've always been a people person and it, it's accords with, it accords with me at a deep level. Some of these guys, you know, have got substance abuse issues and I've been able to sort of talk to them about my experience in AA and now some of them are saying, well, I'll come to a meeting with you, you know, like tomorrow night. I'm taking one of my, my customers to an AA meeting. It's just amazing. So, you know, it seems to me that once, once I get my house in order, once, once, I, once we take care of our own business and we stay in our own freaking hula hoop and we take care of ourselves and our own well-being, it's amazing what happens around us. And that, that's what I'm trying to do, Bill. Okay, thanks. If anybody would like to find out more about Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, you can phone them on 1300 222 or you can go online at aa.org.au and you can get more information and details of local AA meetings and contacts. That's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Danny for sharing his recovery experience with us and talking about how AA has helped him. Thanks, Danny. No worries. You're welcome, Bill. I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when we'll be talking about food obsessions and feature some members of Food Addicts and Recovery Anonymous. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay tuned now for more Radical Radio on 3CR. Tune in to Billabong Beats Tuesdays at 11am with me, Gavin Moore, giving a voice to both Western Kulin and Kulin First Nations peoples. Join me to talk about philosophy and dreamtime stories surrounding the waterhole, the sacred fire, the land, the plants and animals. Billabong Beats, 11am Tuesdays on 3CR.